Good morning. Welcome to everyone who's listening online. And I can't actually do this bit for you, but uh, the rest is going to be verbal. Michael, just behind you, there's a book. If you'd like just to let people have a look. There we go. The um, seven churches are amazing to go and visit. My oldest daughter, Vicky, uh, was told by her church in Connecticut that she could have a sabbatical last year. And so Ruth and I said to her, Vicky, what do you want us to do with you? What can we give you financially for your sabbatical? She said, Dad, I don't want anything. I just want you to take Andre and I, and I want you to do the seven churches with us, just the two of us. You love it so much. Uh, we've been with you in Israel so many, many, many times. Love to see the seven churches. And it, to me, it was just going back in time because the first time I arrived in a place called Efesh, which is famous. Anyone from Turkey? Efesh is the beer. But the first time I went to Efesh, I was living in this little uh, Turkish village called Selçuk. And we went round a corner and there was this huge open space and I could see the bits of uh, buildings and I realized that we were actually in Ephesus. And it's still there. Ephesus got lost for a long time. It was found in 1869 underneath a swamp. And when they started digging it all up, what they discovered was one of the most significant cities in the ancient world. Ephesus, Ephesus was the fourth city of the Roman Empire. It was a city that was on its up and up. It was originally uh, developed in 6000 BC. And its wealth and influence were all taken from its harbor. Now, if you go to Ephesus today, there's no, there's no sea. So you may say, how come a harbor? Well, there was a harbor in those days. It gradually silted up. And today, the sea is five miles away from Ephesus. But in those days, the harbor was right in the middle of the city. From the year 1050 BC, it served as a major port with ships visiting from all parts of the Mediterranean. Strabo, the Roman historian, called it the market of Asia. Others called it the gateway of Asia. Today, all that remains are the pillars of the once magnificent harbor. Now, you may be one of those people who hates history. And I'm really sorry that I've got to inflict some on you because I can't talk to you about Ephesus without talking to you about the history. A friend of mine once wrote a poem, and I'm going to give you the poem in its entirety. Let me recite it to you. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. 
Shall I give it to you again? <laughs> History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. And the incredible thing about Ephesus, this city that got lost until 1869 and was then amazingly refound, is that the story of Ephesus is all there in Scripture and it's just an incredible story. Ephesus is actually founded about 900 BC and its population at its highest was 225,000. That may not sound a lot to you, but in those days that was enormous. And so Ephesus was the fourth city of the Roman Empire. Number one, Rome. Number two, Alexandria. Number three, Antioch. Number four, Ephesus. It was conquered by Alexander the Great in 334 BC. Nothing unusual in that. Everyone was conquered by Alexander the Great. So the Romans took it over in 189 BC. And it became the number one city in Asia. Now, get out of the ideas of Asia as a continent. Asia in those days is a Roman province. So it's much smaller than the continent of Asia. But it was the number one city in the Roman province of Asia, ahead of its two greatest rivals, which were Smyrna and Pergamum. And when we look at the seven cities, and you're already getting bored by the history, I can feel it. I'm sorry. Let me explain a little more for you. It's, it's all a load of rhubarb, actually. All this seven letters to seven cities, and oh dear, don't believe any of that rhubarb. You've got to recognize that in those days, letters weren't written to individual places. Letters were read. And the circular letter was a standard means of communication. And if you look at a map and you look at the seven cities that became the seven churches, you'll discover something that's amazing. You could walk around the seven cities. They're only 300 miles at most. It's not a long journey. Generally, you're talking about 30 miles between the cities. So why were those cities chosen, especially when Hierapolis and Colossae, huge cities, were, were right nearby? Why were the seven chosen that were chosen? And the answer is this. They'd got post offices. Now, you're not believing me, are you? I speak truth. Not past of nothing. You have to be honest. They'd got a post office. In other words, the postal distribution came out of the seven churches. So when you look at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, that's where the post offices were. And that's where the postal distribution came from. 
And so those letters were never intended to be written to individual cities. They were written as circular letters. Everybody was supposed to get all of the seven letters. And so when we're studying them, this is not because they're only relevant to the city of the day, it's because they're so relevant to us. In fact, you'll be amazed at how relevant the letters to the seven churches are. The reason for studying the background, the economics, the history, etc., is simply because that's the context of the letter that's written. There are reasons why the statements are made. And when you're looking at Ephesus, you can understand why that letter was specifically designated for Ephesus, but it had application for all of the seven cities, and they had application for all their postal district, which included Herapolis, Colossae, and everybody else. Have you got it? Really significant, really important. What happens in Ephesus is that the Roman proconsul has to disembark from his boat at Ephesus to enter the province of Asia. It was such a significant place that the Pan-Ionian Games were held there. Now, doesn't that make you excited? How, how many of you have heard of the Pan-Ionian Games? Okay, how many of you have heard of the Olympic Games? Right, the Pan-Ionian Games were the number two. They were second only to the Olympic Games. And it was exactly the kind, same kind of setup as the Olympic Games. There in Ephesus, they had a little stadium. Now, how many people does the Thalian Hall seat? No, a bit bigger than 300. It's 650, I am reliably informed. From the break between the services, it's 650. The equivalent in Ephesus, where the Pan-Ionian Games were held, was 24,000. And I've stood and preached in that place. It is 24,000 seats. It's a massive barn of a place. And what also happens, of course, in Ephesus is it's where the roads met. So it was an incredible trading city. It's where the sea, the port, the harbour, the roads. It's where the, there were, were, were huge courts. So it was a legal centre there in Ephesus. It was a free city without an army of occupation. It was just massive. And what happens in Ephesus is it's also got religion. But its religion was entertaining. Now, if you are of a nervous disposition, you're not going to like this next bit. Because the worship that went on there was the worship of Diana. Diana of the Ephesians. Or to give her her Greek name, Artemis. Now, Artemis literally dropped out of heaven. Literally. Artemis was a bit of a meteorite that landed on Earth. Artemis was black basalt rock. 
and she was renowned, legendary, for her beauty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish I'd got you in, uh, in FS today. I'd take you down to the museum and show you Artemis. And it's an entertaining look because there's this squat, fat bit of black rock. And ladies, you are possessors of boobs. Sorry, I realize this is church, but we can't talk about Diana of the Ephesians without talking about boobs. Because she didn't have two. She had 64. And if I were to show you the statues of, of Diana of the Ephesians today, there's 64 boobs on, on this bit of black rock. And she is squat, fat, and she is also extremely ugly. And the temple that was erected to her in Ephesus became one of the seven wonders of the world. It was 176, I think, pillars. Today there is only one left. And I can take you to a field just outside Ephesus. And you've got this one poor, isolated, lonely little pillar. And it's all that's left of one of the great wonders of the world. And there in Ephesus, there is something else about religion that is really important. Because you watch all the people going around Ephesus, and I find it tragic, because they don't know what they're looking at. And so some bright young guide says, and there is Domitian's warehouse. And nobody gets excited. Nobody is struck by the significance that that's the mission's warehouse. It's so important. Well, you got excited, didn't you? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to come with me and see the mission's warehouse? Obviously not. Let's try again. Domitian, Roman emperor. A.D. 80. Why is he significant? Oh, dear. First Roman emperor on a major scale to persecute the Christians. I know Nero did uh, 15 years earlier, but that wasn't a major scale. Domitian was. Domitian was the first attempt at Christian extermination. And what made it important was this. Domitian introduced a form of religion to the Roman emperor, empire. He didn't introduce another god. They had enough of those anyway. What he did was he introduced the worship of the emperor. And so he insisted that everybody worshipped the emperor. Now... Why is that important? Well, answer me a question. If you are told you've got to worship another god and you refuse to, what is your crime? Technically. Your crime is atheism. 
You're denying the existence of a God. What crime are you guilty of if you refuse to worship the emperor? Treason. And so Domitian, AD 80, introduces persecution, the murder of Christians, as the penalty for their treason in refusing to worship the emperor. Now, he did try to make it easy for them. He insisted they took one little pinch of incense, threw it on the flame, and that was their worship to the emperor. But the Christians would not do it. And so this went way beyond pagan worship. This was actually the worship of a man as God. And it first starts in Ephesus. Ephesus, the city that's on the up and up. Have you had enough history for this morning? All right, well, let's move on. The church that was given every opportunity. Ephesus was the church that had it all. Had everything. On its streets, the great apostle Paul walked and preached. This was Ephesus. And its apostolic links were phenomenal. In fact, Paul indicates in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15 that Ephesus could have become the mother church. His three years there were longer than he spent anywhere else. He founded the church there. Apollos served there. And so did Onesimus. That didn't get any grunts or... Mm. Onesimus. It means the useful one. He was the slave of Philemon. Further detail, read the book of Philemon. It's only a chapter. Priscilla and Aquila worked there in Ephesus and may effectively have co-founded the work. Now we're going to get into the difficult bit. How many of you have ever heard of Eusebius? Eusebius, great man, historian. Well, I like him. Eusebius was bishop of Caesarea in the third century and a pretty crummy historian. Eusebius got lots of things wrong. So when I say to you Eusebius wrote something, don't necessarily believe it. But it might have been true. Eusebius claims that between the years AD 37 and AD 42, Two people arrived in Ephesus who are quite important for the story. The two people are the Virgin Mary and the guy who her son had entrusted with looking after her. Who did Jesus give the care of his mother to? John. So the story is that John... And the Virgin Mary arrived in Ephesus. Eusebius claims that Timothy became the first bishop of Ephesus and that John became its first permanent pastor. Certainly, Ephesus had a lot going for it. 
False leaders were exposed. Christians worked hard. Their toil was praised. Revelation chapter 2, verse 3. They patiently suffered in, uh, and endured opposition. There was a riot in the defense of Diana of Artemis, the beautiful 64-breasted goddess. And this riot took place in the 24,000-seater theater. Coupled to its paganism, Ephesus had a large Jewish community. So you could rouse the local population quite easily against Christianity. In the second century, the famous Christian apologist Justin Martyr would have a dialogue with Trypho the Jew. That was amazing. It was amazing. All that happened in Ephesus. Paul established the church, left Timothy to supervise its growth. Things were going really well. Sort of. Because something serious went wrong. Let me explain what went wrong. Now, this is going to be a little bit difficult for us all. You see, I'm not sure how much you know about the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. My guess is not much. Is that right? Well, it, that means you're not around in the first century. Let me read. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work <coughs> and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but aren't. You've discovered they are liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So who were the Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans were early Christian pagan Gnostic syncretists. Does that help? <laughs> Let's take that bit by bit. Early, they were first century. Christian, sort of. Pagan, yeah. Gnostic. Well, gnosis, the Greek word means knowledge. Syncretists. A syncretist is someone who mixes up Christianity. Well, mixes up faiths, but he mixes up Christianity with everything else. What happened in the early church was that it got itself mixed up with everything else. 
It didn't keep its exclusive commitments. It mixed Christianity up with other faith. When we arrived in Wilmington, Ruth went shopping. This is not news. And at the checkout, the lady said, well, we're all Christians in Wilmington. This is not a clever thing to say to my wife. <laughs> Ruth said, really? What do you mean? The lady said, well, well, we all take our shopping carts back. As if that's the exclusive qualification to call yourself a Christian, and we don't hoot our horns in traffic. Jesus didn't feature, but what she did was this lady's justification for calling herself a Christian. That's syncretism. It's mixing up the Christian faith with everything else. And that's what happened in Ephesus. They argued that a Christian was someone who qualified as a Christian on culinary or sexual grounds. I think I need to explain that. Culinary grounds, the argument was that Christians could eat what they wanted. Sexual grounds, the argument was that Christians could sleep with who they wanted. Nothing new under the sun. But it's amazing that that's exactly what was happening in Ephesus. There were no standards of purity. There was no exclusion from things that the world did. There, the idea was that Christians could copy what everybody else had. And so the idea of a syncretist is someone who mixes up the faith with everything else and with everybody else. In other words, they baptize their culture and make everything Christian. Christians are singular for what they don't do, not just for what they do do. So let's just move on. When Scripture says that in Ephesus they lost their first love, what does it mean? Well, it means that they lost their love for Christ. Their first love. It means they lost their love for each other. It means they lost their love for the world at large. Now, let me find out if you were listening. It means they lost their love for... Very good. It means they lost their love for... Very good. It means they lost their love for... Let's try again. They lost their love for... They lost their love for... They lost their love for... They lost their love for Christ, for each other, for the world at large. So which one did they lose? 
The Australian theologian Leon Morris argues that they, if you lose one, you lose all three. If you lose your love for Christ, you'll lose your love for each other. If you lose your love for each other, you'll lose your love for the world at large. You must keep all three. Don't lose your first love. Ephesus became the church that lost it all. Economically, she prospered. There were two agoras, two marketplaces, to promote performance in business. Ephesus excelled in heresy hunting. They got rid of the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. The only problem was they got orthodoxy, but they lost passion. They lost love for Jesus, for each other, and for the world at large. One of the great dangers is that we judge the quality of our fellowship and our church by our doctrinal purity, not by our love for Jesus, our love for each other, or our love for the world at large. And that's fatal. And so the church in Ephesus lost its first love. Christianity became largely a matter of habit. They just did it. <coughs> when that happens, the first thing you lose is meeting together. You read, and if you read in Hebrews 10, that's exactly what it says. You lose meeting together, as is the habit of some. It's the first bit of litmus paper to show that you're losing your first love. The fire and the enthusiasm die out. The passion, the passionate commitment, the excitement dies out. What you're left with is half-heartedness. Um, if you get a minute to look in 2 Chronicles 25 verse 2, you'll find that King Amaziah lost his passion. And that half-heartedness is death to true Christianity. The Anglican theologian Jim Packer puts it like this. So many people today make busyness their religion. The stuff they do for God becomes more important than the love they have for God. And so they become proud of their orthodoxy and they try to earn instead of just receive their salvation. What happens in Ephesus is they chose to live lives of unrestrained indulgence. If they wanted it, they had it. Jesus instructs them to return to where they'd started out. Instead, they've forsaken their first love. They neglect the blessings of God, choosing instead what the world has to offer. There are some lessons in Ephesus. They are painful. One, move forward carefully. Two, 
Don't lose sight of your first love. Three, you may be orthodox and hate the Nicolaitans. Don't lose your love for each other. You may succeed in hating the sins, but don't forget you're supposed to love the sinners. And if you lose your sight of your first love, your candlestick will be taken away. Oh, isn't that horrible? Do you want to lose your candlestick? I mean, you're not, you're not reacting properly. I don't know what you're doing listening to this online. I hope there are oohs and ahs and groans and gars. You're, let me try again. You'll lose your candlestick. Oh. I'm not sure you know what you were groaning at. What it means if you lose your candlestick is it means the church dies. The church is taken away. And the importance is if you lose your first love, you'll lose the church. Church is not a matter of habit. It's not a matter of orthodoxy. It's not a thing you do. It's a person you love. It's people you're committed to. It's growing together. It's going on with each other. It's really, really, really important. Don't lose your first love. The city which had it all, Ephesus, known as the light of Asia, and then it threw it all away. Today, all that's left of Diana's temple is just one pillar. Ephesus is there. You can see the brothel. I could take you to see the brothel. And the footprint in, in the ground that points the way to the brothel. I can show you the open-air toilets. Interesting concept. I can show you the room where the seven sleepers slept. You familiar with the seven sleepers? It's a lovely story in the year of Decius, 250 AD, Roman emperor, who introduced, reintroduced the idea of persecution. When Decius reintroduced persecution, there were seven young Christians, the story goes, in Ephesus who went and hid in a room and didn't emerge for 250 years. 250 years later, they came out and discovered the world had changed. Discovered there were crosses on some of the buildings. Discovered there were churches in the open. And when they went to pay for stuff in the marketplace... They tried to use coins minted in the reign of Decius and found they weren't popular anymore. It's Rip Van Winkle all over again. It's a story. It's a legend. But it's a story that became very popular. It's in the Quran and it's very popular in church history. 
But the story of the seven sleepers is legend. It's just a story. And the danger was that for Ephesus, Christianity was becoming just a story. In 431 AD, it had a huge church council. But it was a story, not reality. It's not just enough to have a memory. You need to recapture performance. You need repentance to turn around to a new way of life. You need action to put that repentance in practice. But Ephesus had lost something, thrown it all away. Ephesus is finally abandoned in the 14th century. Today there are only ruins and a memory. The grave of St. John is reputed to be at the top of the hill. Nobody's sure. There's just admiration for the past. But there's no enthusiasm for the future. Do you know what you can't find in Ephesus today? You can't find a church. Because they lost their first love. Now I'm going to take a risk with you. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm not trying to be difficult, although I suspect that I will be all three. <laughs> the problem with Wilmington is there is a heck of a lot of evidence around that we're rapidly losing our first love that we're living on a memory. We're living on a glorious past. We're living on everything that we had and not everything that we have. One of the reasons for saying that is this. We seem to judge our churches by whether there's good fellowship, whether it's nice to be there, whether we enjoy Michael's preaching. It's really risky to judge church by those kind of things. When Ruth and I went to uh, our church in Connecticut, we found a church of nearly a thousand people, but it was much more concerned about how it felt than what it did. And we tried to introduce a concept that wasn't normal language in the church. We talked about people meeting Jesus. We talked about the idea of having a vase and putting a, an artificial yellow flower in the vase if somebody met Jesus. We found as the weeks went by, that that vase and other vases became full of artificial plastic yellow flowers. We found that we'd get 150 or 200 flowers. You may say, well, well I'm, I'm not very gifted at doing that kind of thing. Well, that's fine. Because I'm not talking about you and I sitting down and praying prayers with people or going through a booklet 
or anything else. I'm talking about each of us doing something that draws people towards Jesus. Pedro passed me this week and didn't stop. Just kept driving. But he'd got time to reach out of the window and wave because there was acknowledgement. Acknowledgement that we are friends because we're one body in Christ Jesus. I really value that. I love going walking out near his home. And I love the way that we can acknowledge one another. And I love the fact that someone coming to Jesus isn't praying the sinner's prayer. It's gradually recognizing that there is a God. It's gradually realizing that this God has come and died out of love for us. It's gradually coming to the recognition that that God wants to bring us into a relationship with him. So it's not what we know, it's who we know. It's wonderful to come to the point of realizing that that God wants to bring us into his family and make us part of his church. And therefore evangelism is not just doing any one thing with people. It's doing lots of things and gradually drawing them closer and closer to the Lord of glory. It's actually recognizing that church is all about people discovering God and people discovering that knowing God is about drawing others to the knowledge of Jesus. It's not about what I like, it's what he likes. It's not about what I do, it's about what he does in me and through me. It's actually about the fact that he wants me not to live on the past, but to have a love, a first love, that is valid and real and vibrant and enthusiastic now. It's about growing in Jesus. And that's why these letters are so important. Because the letter to the church of Ephesus is all about one thing. Don't lose your first love. Don't live in the past. Don't forget what he wants. Recognize that it's all about allowing him to create a future in you, for you, and through you. Recognize that he's going to do something special and do it in special ways. And recognize that in being victorious, he will give you from the tree of life, that you may live in the love and knowledge and reality of Christ Jesus. It is so, so important that we don't miss what God has for us. And it is tragic to walk around Ephesus. No church. No believers. Only the memory of the past. No enthusiastic future. And you look now at where we're at in the opening days of 2021. There is great danger that we're losing it. And instead, the message comes from the Lord of glory. Don't lose your first love. Recover that love. Move on deeper and deeper into that love. See God create church in you and through you. And recognize that tomorrow 
is meant to weigh out distance. Yesterday. The alternative is those who live in the past will lose it. Those who live for the future will find it in Jesus.